What a blessing to be with you tonight and a great honor to be with you over the next couple of days for this annual, yes, annual missions conference. And I agree, I pray that God would have total sway in each and every heart. That you would be open to what he has for you and what he wants to speak to you. And it's possible, this is what God does, he changes life trajectories he might speak something to you over the next couple of days that will plant a new idea in your heart. Some of you, it's possible that you've been for years thinking about a potential missionary calling. Uh, inevitably, in times like this, the, the Holy Spirit moves and, and shakes you loose. So it, it's pretty exciting to think about some of you out there, no matter what stage of life you're in, that maybe God has this plan for you to thrust you out to the nations. So. And if you're not called to go, you have a role in this mission, of course. So everyone has a role to play. So uh, when I'm traveling, I get the question that's always asked when you're traveling, are you on a business trip or a pleasure trip? And I just nod my head affirmatively <laughs> and say yes, because my business is my pleasure, my job is my joy. I get to be a part of mobilizing the people of God to be a part of the mission of God. I tell my wife all the time, you know, I, I have to pinch myself. I can't believe I get to do this. Who am I that I have this privilege of serving the body of Christ in her purpose to make disciples of all nations? So I am truly honored to be with you again over the next few days. I work with 1615, as was mentioned. It's a ministry named after the reference in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 15. Perhaps you've memorized this passage. It says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And we're missions mobilizers. And our ministry exists today because there is this massive shift in local churches away from just being support-driven in missions to becoming actively engaged. There's a growing wave of churches, and it's been building for probably 20 plus years. And these are churches that are no longer content to do missions just by serving in support roles. They don't want to outsource their obedience. They want to be involving their people. They want their gifts and talents to come to bear in the purposes of God. And so we come alongside churches like that, and we help them to understand their global mission. We help them answer the question, God what have you called us to accomplish? And then we help them develop vision, endemic vision that is compelling and clear, vision that pulls the whole body into the vision, um, into the strategy, and then we connect them to partners around the world. And for the last 15 years, 16 years, um, we've been around about 15 or 16 years. Um, the ministry is 16, 15, and we've been around about 15 or 16 years. Um, by God's grace, we have mobilized churches around the United States, also in Canada. We've got an affiliate in Europe, and those churches that have been mobilized are engaging people groups all across the planet. So what a blessing, what a ride it has been. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We're going to take a look at 10 verses, verses 14 through 24. And we're going to unpack these scriptures together tonight. If you're a note taker, I've entitled tonight's message, Gospel Ambition. We're going to learn about this passion, this all-consuming passion that Paul the Apostle possessed. So 
chapter 15, verse 14 through 24. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. What are you known for? And by you, I mean you, not Osterville Baptist. Sometimes in this context, people think I'm talking about the church, but I'm not talking about the church right now. I'm talking about you personally. What are you known for? If I were to ask someone who's well acquainted with you, what drives you? What piques your interest? What are the things that you are prioritizing in life? What is your life for? What do you live for? What would their answers reveal about you? Think about that for just a second. I tap someone on the shoulder. They know you well. And I ask them, what is this person about? What would their answers reveal about you? Well, those who knew Paul the Apostle knew exactly what mattered most to him. In fact, if we look at the body of his New Testament writings, what clearly stands out can be summed up in five words. Knowing Christ, making Christ known. This was Paul's ambition. He had gospel ambition. He was ablaze to know Jesus. He lived to worship him. He lived to worship him. And it was precisely his zeal to worship Jesus that fueled his mission's flame to see the nations glorify God for his mercy. Let me say that again. It was his passion to worship Jesus that fueled his passion to see the nations come to know him. And this gospel ambition that Paul had, it gave context, it gave meaning and purpose to all areas of Paul's life. It defined his mission and it shaped how he lived. 
So gospel ambition, what is it exactly? Well, we see it in verses 20 through 23. Paul was controlled by this ambition. He says in verse 22 specifically that this gospel ambition was the reason he was hindered from going to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome, but something was holding him back. And then in verse 23, it says, I long to visit you. He longed for many years to visit the church in Rome. When you have a longing to do something, something you want to do, but you don't do it for years and years, something else must be controlling you to the contrary, right? It was gospel ambition that was controlling Paul. It prevented him from going to Rome, though he wanted to. He had not yet finished his work of making Christ known in the regions from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And then he says in verse 24, this is interesting, he says, I no longer have work in these regions from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and so now I'm freed, essentially, to come to you in Spain as I go to Rome. Excuse me. He's headed to Spain, and I'm gonna stop and visit you, Romans, is what I meant to say. As I pass through on my way to Spain, I want to see you. He was consumed by gospel ambition to preach Jesus Christ to those who had not heard of him in these regions from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and he would not turn until his ambition was fulfilled. And he says something interesting, my work is done in these regions, and we're gonna talk more about that later because it's really fascinating. He says, my work is fulfilled, my ministry is done, and now his ambition is taking him to Spain to do what, preach the gospel, but on the way there, he's going to visit the church in Rome. So do you have gospel ambition? Do I have gospel ambition? Do we desire to see peoples who have never heard his name trust him, treasure him, be saved by him? Do we have this gospel ambition to see the nations worship our king, to glorify him for his mercy? Or do you think, well, you know, I love Jesus. He's important to me, but missions just isn't my thing. And so maybe you give yourself the I'm not an apostle pass. One of the things I want to address tonight is this. Is gospel ambition something that all of God's children should even possess? Or is it just for some of God's children? We're going to answer those questions. We see in verse 21 that Paul's gospel ambition was founded and fueled by Scripture. This is really important. Verse 21, I'm going to read it. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And it's probably in pull quotes, or the equivalent in the Bible, right? It's in a special section here. He's quoting the Old Testament. What's going on here? Well, Paul is rooting his calling to reach the nations, to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Scripture. In fact, if you have time, look at verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. You can write them down, look them up later. In these passages, 
15, 12, and then here in verse 21, Paul quotes Old Testament prophecy to remind us that the gospel is for all peoples, not just for the Jews. And this is amazing to me. This is remarkable, in fact. We know from several references in Acts that Paul had an incredible encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, right? Supernatural encounter with the risen king. He's blinded. He can't see physically. He is knocked to the ground. He falls on his fanny. And then we know out of this circumstance, God, through Jesus, gives him his mission to be a light to the Gentiles. Now think about this for just a second. Paul's calling, again, straight from the risen Jesus. And yet here in Romans 15, he doesn't refer to his Damascus Road experience as the validation for his calling to reach the nations. No, he says, I have ambition because of Isaiah 52, 15. He draws from the Old Testament. Again, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. So here's the point. We should not be waiting around for a supernatural encounter to confirm our calling into missions. We have more Bible than Paul did. And we will likely never have a spiritual encounter, supernatural encounter with Jesus like Paul had on the Damascus Road. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus doesn't at times meet his children in dramatic fashion. Maybe you've had some of those encounters, maybe you haven't. I've had a few of them since God rescued me in 1994. Moments of incredible intimacy with Jesus where I just felt like he closed in on me. I know some of you've had that, some of you haven't. But we don't need to wait for an experience like that to convince us to be involved in missions. We don't need a Damascus Road experience because the Bible tells us that the gospel is for the nations, that we must take it to those who've never heard. We must reach them. So I love this phrase. I lifted it from someone else. I don't know who came up with it originally. I would give them attribution if I remembered, but I don't remember. We don't need a voice. We have a verse. Verses, actually. Rob went to Genesis 10. There's a thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It is the master story of Scripture, the meta-narrative. It's a plan of redemption. God is on a mission to call out worshipers from all nations, tribes, and tongues. We don't need a voice. We have a verse, lots of them, verses. Oh, to God that the Bible would inflame and inform our gospel ambition. The Bible is the best mobilizer ever if it's taught and read properly. Do you think of the Bible as one story? You should. There's many subplots. There's many sub-stories, sub-themes, but there is one master story. Again, I mentioned it earlier, the Greeks call it the meta-narrative, the main narrative. And in Scripture, it's all about God calling out a worshiping people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's there from Genesis in the beginning all the way through, and we see it, of course, 
in Revelation. This is the arc of Scripture. So Paul's gospel ambition was founded and fueled by Scripture. The second thing we see is that it, is, it was focused on regions beyond. Verses 14 through 19, then also in 23 here. I'm not going to reread these, but three times in verses 14 through 19, Paul writes about the focus or you could say the object of his gospel ambition. Gentiles, Gentiles, Gentiles. When you see the authors of Scripture emphasizing something, they typically repeat themselves. It's emphatic. He's making a point. He's emph- he wants us to stop and take notice. Gentiles, Gentiles, Gentiles. This is the object of his gospel ambition. The Greek word for Gentiles is the word ethnos. And I'll let you know, I'm not a Greek scholar. I just have good Bible software. So any of you can get online and look up original languages. This is one of those times where it's really important to understand the meaning of this word. Gentiles, ethnos. Meaning, ethnic groupings. Language groups. Ethno-linguistic groupings. People groups with distinct languages and cultures that make it difficult for the gospel to spread naturally from one to the other, which is precisely why the gospel must be exported. There are language barriers, cultural barriers, that prevent the gospel spreading from one people group, ethnic group, to another, and so we must take it in. And this, by the way, is the same word that Jesus uses when he gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Panta ta ethne. Same word. Ethnos, ethne, one's singular, one's plural, but same word, same root word. People groups. Language groups. Jesus says, all authority belongs to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations. Our mandate to make disciples of all the nations is based upon the greatness of Jesus Christ. Paul knew this. He knew about this message in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. So back to Romans 15. Again, same word Jesus used. I want to take a closer look at verses 19 and 23 specifically Again, I mentioned this earlier, but there's some real treasure here. Verse 19, he says, From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And in verse 23, he says something just unbelievable to me. I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Now, what on earth does Paul mean? From Jerusalem to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry God gave me to do. In fact, I no longer have room for work in these regions. Fulfill this ministry? No more work left to do for Paul? Let me ask you a question. Were the churches that Paul had planted fully mature? (laughs) I mean... Friends, Corinth could have used him indefinitely, right? No, they were not fully mature. 
They were still growing. They were struggling. There was tremendous needs in those cities where he planted those churches. There were still tens and thousands of unbelievers. There was a need for mercy and justice and compassion and all those things that the body of Christ is supposed to demonstrate, yes. But here's the point. Paul made a distinction between evangelism and missions, and so should we. Both are necessary. Both are necessary for the life and the vitality of the church and the world, but they're not the same Paul was focused on the Gentiles, ethnic groups, people groups, living in regions beyond because in those regions, among those groups, folks, there was no evangelizing church. There was no gospel light. There was no church to do evangelism. So he was focused on taking the gospel and planting the church where it did not Exist. Now it's worth noting what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. You got to love this. He tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He said, Timothy, stay, don't go. Do the work of an evangelist, grow and strengthen the church where I have planted it. He didn't tell him to do the work of a missionary, he told him to do the work of of an evangelist. George Murray, he's chancellor of Columbia International University, and he has these phrases that I really think are helpful. He says, evangelism is helping people believe in Jesus. Missions is helping people know there's a Jesus to believe in. See the difference? Evangelism is growing the church where it is even if it's struggling, even if it's having a tough time, right? Missions is going where the church isn't. The essence of missions for Paul was going places where Christ was not known, where where he was not being praised. He had not yet been named. Did he care about evangelism? Absolutely. He cared about the growth and the development and the strengthening of the churches he had planted. So he told Timothy, stay where you're at because you're called to be an evangelist. You are called to grow and strengthen the church where it's been planted. But I want to take the gospel and plant churches where there is no church. A question I have often heard from Christians more times than I can recall is why are we going there? This is true, okay? And if you've said this, I'm not trying to browbeat you. Why are we going over there? There's so many lost people right here. There's so many needy people, poor people. There's so many challenges right here. Why are we going over there? I wonder if Paul was ever asked that question from these early church leaders. Paul, why? (laughs) Corinth? Ephesus? Paul, we need you. (laughs) 
I think if Paul would have been asked that question, this is how he might have responded. I'm going over there because I'm going to peoples, Gentiles, with no access to the gospel. I'm going to peoples who couldn't hear it if they wanted to because there's no church. The lost and the needy here, they've got you. There's a church here. It's called the body of Christ. There is a representation of Jesus right here, albeit broken, not perfect, but there is a body of believers here called to be salt and light in this city. I need to plant a church where there is no body of believers to be salt and light. So do the work of an evangelist. I'm going there, but you stay here. Do the work of an evangelist. I'm going to regions beyond where there's no churches. I think Paul might have answered like that. Folks, there are today, and this may be shocking to some of you, um, those of you who've been to Pioneers at the CPF and maybe been through the Perspectives course, if you know about that or are aware of this. But it's estimated that 35 to 37% of the world has no access to the gospel. Thousands of people groups. Thousands of people groups. With little or no gospel access. They're the gospel destitute. They are distinct languages and cultures and people groups that do not have a gospel witness yet. And among those people groups, the Jesus that we praised tonight and prized, he's unnamed and he's unloved and he's unacknowledged and he's unadored. And that for Paul was unacceptable. That's why he went to the regions beyond. We're gonna watch a, a video here and I think it really emphasizes the importance of prioritizing when it comes to missions, those who have limited or no access. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. He also promised us that only after we accomplish that task will we receive the blessing of His return. So, how are we doing accomplishing our mission? To answer that, Let's classify the 7 billion people on the earth today into three groups. Let's start with the Christians. About 33% of the world's population would identify itself as Christian. We call this segment of the population World C, C for Christian. It's important to remember that not all of the people that fall into World C are true believers in Christ. They merely identify themselves as Christian because of nominal belief in Jesus, or because they live in a country where everyone is considered Christian, so they would do the same. Next, there's the 38% of the world that has access to the gospel but has chosen not to follow Jesus. They have Bibles in their language, churches nearby, friends or co-workers who are potentially Christians, or access to other Christian resources in their language. These people have access to the good news, but just haven't acted on it yet. This segment of the population is called World B. That leaves us with 29% of the world, just over one out of every four people on this planet who not only have never heard of Jesus, they have no chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. 
They have no access to the gospel, no Bibles, no churches, no believers nearby, no chance to learn about Jesus. We call that 29% World A. Now on to missionaries. Only one out of every 1,800 Christians in World C decides to serve as a cross-cultural missionary. So, we can pull 400,000 missionaries out of that World C population. That's our total cross-cultural missionary force worldwide. Did you know that 72% of all our missionaries are going to World C? That's right, the vast majority of the missionaries being sent out are going to the people of the world that have Bibles and established churches. 25% of the missionaries are sent to World B, where there is already some access to the church and to the Bible. That leaves only 3% of the total missionary force to handle all of World A, the section of the population without any chance of hearing about Jesus. 29% of the world has no way to hear the gospel, but we're sending only a tiny portion of our Christian workers to them. What about finances? Annually, all those Christians in World C earn a total of $42 trillion. And together, they give about $700 billion to Christian causes each year. That includes everything. Christian nonprofits, churches, youth programs, missions, etc. Can you do the math? Less than 2% of Christian income is being given to Christ's causes. Out of that $700 billion given to all Christian causes, only $45 billion is given to missions specifically. That's a little over 6%. In fact, there is more money reported embezzled from the church each year than is given to missions. Remember those 400,000 missionaries? We have $45 billion to support them and their cross-cultural work. But how exactly is it allocated? Well, $39 billion goes to World C every year. Yep. 87% of that mission's money is being spent in areas of the world that have Bibles and churches available. 5.4 billion, or 12%, goes to World B each year, those that have access to the gospel message but have rejected it. That leaves only $450 million, or 1% of all mission's money, going to World A, the least reached people of the world. To put that into perspective, annually Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than gets sent to World A. To summarize, only 3% of our missionary force, armed with only 1% of missions giving, is going out to reach the 2 billion people who don't have access to the gospel. 2 billion people are still waiting for the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you. What are you going to do to change that? Wow. I want to emphasize something here. I know this can be a bit of a, a, a gut punch. Um, it's not either or, it's both and. Evangelism and missions. It's not either or, it's both and. We, we, we should be salt and light wherever God places us. We should be actively involved in our communities but we also need to prioritize those places as Paul did that have little or no access to the gospel. So yes, continue to share the gospel with your neighbors in a very unchurched part of the country. We know that to be true. Um, but encourage, I'm encouraged by a church that's not only doing that, but is also looking to those who have little or no access. So third point I wanna make tonight is that this gospel ambition is for every church and for every child of God. I want you to look at verse 24 with me. 
I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Again, Paul's on his way to Spain. He's going to stop in Rome. He's going to Spain. Why? Gospel ambition. He wants to proclaim the gospel there. And he says, I want to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So if it's not clear from the text we've already looked at, don't get the idea that every follower of Christ with gospel ambition should be sent as a missionary to regions beyond. After all, Paul told Timothy, what? Stay. You do the work of an evangelist. Grow the church where I've planted it. Grow and strengthen the church where I planted it. If we love Jesus, we should all have gospel ambition, namely this passion of Paul to see the nations glorify God for his mercy. But folks, we all have different roles to play. We all have a different contribution to give. And again, in verse 24, he says, I want to be helped by you when I'm there and enjoy your company for a while. So clearly, Paul did not expect everyone to go with him. He didn't expect them all to be missionaries but he did want them to share in his gospel ambition. So what exactly did he mean when he said, help me on my journey? Well, I think it meant doing whatever it would take to keep Paul there. The, the spiritual air cover, the prayer, the supply lines, the resources. I think that was implied in that. Resources to help him in this endeavor and we see this kind of sending and support in action in the church in Philippi. I want you to listen. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. You can look it up later. But I want you to listen how Paul celebrates his partnership with the church in Philippi. And this, I believe, is exactly what he's asking for from the church in Rome. So this is how Paul talks about the church in Philippi and their support of him as Paul the missionary. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So they were concerned for Paul. There was an opportunity that surfaced and they took advantage of it. And in um, verses 14 through 16, he says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you send me help for my needs once and again. So they were meeting Paul's needs. They were supplying resources for him. And who was it that brought these gifts to Paul the apostle? Well, we know that from the Bible context here that he was in prison, right? He was um, imprisoned in Philippi. He was chained. The gospel was not changed. But folks, it wasn't UPS that brought these gifts to Paul. It wasn't FedEx. It was a personal visit by a man named Epaphroditus, a delegate, if you will, a representative of the church in Philippi. And this is what Paul says about Epaphroditus, in verse 25 of chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says, he's my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So, let me explain what's going on here. Paul, again, in prison, 
One of his sending and supporting churches is the church in Philippi, and they love Paul. In fact, when you read the book of Philippians, you might want to consider it as a missionary support letter from Paul. He's, he's communicating back to this church that sent him and supported him. Several churches did. His sending church was Antioch, but this was one of the churches that joined in the giving. And he talks about their prayer for him, their financial support. And he, he seemed to have a very special place in his heart for this church in Philippi. And Paul's in prison again, and uh, the, the church in Philippi can't go. I mean, they can't send everyone from the church. So they choose a delegate who is a representation of the church's love. And this is what Paul says about him in the latter part of um, chapter 2. He says, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now it's interesting, it almost seems like an indictment against the church's love. He, he says, he completed what was lacking in your service to me. Well, it's not an indictment, okay? He, he, he loved this church, they loved him, he knew it. The only thing that was lacking was the delivery of the love in person. They gave Paul the gift of presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. He's a frontline missionary, and he needed encouragement and support and resourcing. And so this church sent a representative. Epaphroditus, folks, wasn't a missionary. <laughs> Maybe a short-term missionary, right? But he wasn't, he was in Philippi. He was in the church in Philippi, but he was sent he risked his life to keep Paul doing what he was doing, and that in some measure is the calling that is on every one of us, to keep the frontline servants doing what God has called them to do. The aim of gospel ambition is that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. And to that end, what God does is he raises up missionaries, sent out ones from the context of churches, and he gets them to the front lines through the people that stay here that do the work of the church and evangelism, and they also do the work of sending and supporting. They pray, they give, they advocate. So here's the point. Gospel ambition, I asked this question earlier, is it for every child of God? It is. It's for every child of God, it's for every church, not for some churches, not for some children of God, because it's at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of of the scriptures, it's at the heart of God himself. If you are someone who prays this prayer, and you probably do, God make me like you, I wanna be more like you, then the things that matter most to God will matter most to you. You can't say after tonight, missions isn't my thing. Now you're here, so there was some interest. Maybe you're already you know, a repeat offender for this type of stuff, I don't know. But maybe this is new to you. You can't say that. And here's the point. If you don't get involved, you'll be missing out anyway. There's joy and adventure that God gives to his children that join him on this mission to see Christ praised among all peoples. So we know what gospel ambition is. It's this passion to see that Jesus is praised among all peoples. And it should shape 
our lives, inform our decisions, should shape our giving, our serving, our prayers. We know that it is for every child of God. It's for every church. We know that it should be focused on regions beyond, people groups outside the reach of the gospel. Don't stop being salt and light and doing evangelism here. By no means, don't do that. But lift your eyes to those places that don't have it. Now I want to close with this. Where is it going? Where is gospel ambition going? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12. Probably a familiar passage. After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped him saying, Amen, blessing and glory and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Gospel ambition, where's it going? Here, in this breathtaking passage, the Holy Spirit peels back the curtains of time and space, and we get a glimpse into the end that history is moving towards. You want to know how things end? It's right here. This is where everything is headed, and we see the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth, and He is receiving the reward of His suffering. What is that reward? Worship. Worship that is flowing from the hearts of people redeemed from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. This is the resolution of the master story, the conclusion, if you will. We're going to talk about this tomorrow morning. The church is inaugurated in a global context. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2 tomorrow. It's made for missions But here we see the consummation of the church. And it's amazing. Here's that global context again. So when we enter this throne room scene and bow down before the Lamb, and alongside of us are those untold numbers of worshipers from all nations, tribes, and tongues. There will be no question as to what the greatest movement in history was. It's that. And so my encouragement to you as you're entering into this weekend, as you're thinking about what God has for you, be asking yourself this question, God, how do I take my life, my temporary local life and labor, and how do I align it with this global purpose of yours? Help me find my place in this plan of yours. Give me gospel ambition. Amen?
Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your mercy. We woke up this morning to new mercies. Not a one of us in this room prayed, give me what I deserve. We asked for mercy and you gave it because it's new with each day. And you give us mercy. You, you forgive us not by turning your back on our sin, not by ignoring it or sweeping it under some cosmic rug. You give us mercy and preserve justice at the same time by punishing Jesus for the sins that we committed. And we thank you for grace. We thank you that you credit to us the righteousness of Jesus. He lived the life that we could not. And when we take him as our treasure, he is not only our curse bearer, he is our law keeper. And you call us sons and daughters. And God, wonder of wonders, you don't stop there. You not only call us sons and daughters righteous and forgiven with a place in your kingdom eternally, but now here in time and space, you call us into your mission. You give such significance to our lives by allowing us to live for something that's bigger than ourselves and larger than our own interests. To be a part of something that's eternal. To be a part of the only cause that in the end won't fail. There's nothing in this life, God, that we can invest ourselves into. Nothing where we are assured that the outcome will be triumph. Save this. And so I pray for your sons and daughters here, God. Some already engaged, already in the family business. They already know the joy of participating with you in these purposes. Um, God, cause the flame in their heart to burn even brighter. And for those who are just here out of curiosity, maybe they, have, they love you. <laughs> they know the gospel, but, but they've, they've thought missions isn't my thing. God, I pray that you would convince them otherwise that they would come to know that some of the best joy available to us this side of heaven comes when we participate with the Father in the family business of making disciples of all nations. I pray there wouldn't be a single child in this room in hearing of this message that would miss out on what it means to join the Father in this incredible story of redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.